Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. We'll read verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, Not seven times, but I tell you, seventy-seven times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all of his possessions, and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves, who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their lord all that had taken place. Then his lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave, as I had mercy on you? And in anger his lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, speak to us on this difficult topic. Lord, give us your wisdom and your power. Lord, to be in relationship with you is to forgive, but it is so far from our natural state. So Lord, help us. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. My earliest faith development was in one of the most unhealthy churches you could imagine. Uh, my home church liked to argue. It didn't matter about what. They just liked it. In our DNA, we fought. Uh, I remember uh, we had lights out in front of the church building that shone up on the steeple at night so that people that passed by on the busy highway would see the, the very witness of the steeple on our church. Well, part of the church thought we shouldn't run the lights because it cost too much money. Others thought we ought to turn the lights on to, to, to light up the steeple at night. And so they fought about it. There were meetings about it. The board got together and they argued and fought. And then after the decision was made, they fought about the decision. It was every week, it seemed like. It wasn't just the lights outside. Our sanctuary had a dimmer switch for the house lights. Uh, and during the early part of the service, uh, right up until the sermon, the house lights were always all the way up. But when it came sermon time, uh, part of the church thought that the house lights ought to be dimmed during the sermon. Uh, the other part of the church, you guessed it, thought that the house lights ought to still be all the way up. And yes, we fought about it. I was in there. We chose up sides, and each side thought the other was completely wrong. There were meetings about it, and discussions, and decisions, and fights about the decisions. It was silly. 
back in those days, we were still using the older United Methodist hymnal, where almost all the hymns ended with the word Amen. You sing all the verses of the hymn, and then after the final verse, everybody would sing Amen. Well, you can see where this is going already. Part of the congregation thought that in real worship, we ought to sing Amen at the end of the hymn. Another part of the congregation thought that we didn't need to do that. And yes, they thought about it, had meetings, decisions, thought about decisions. You see the cycle. My church loved to argue. It didn't really matter a whole lot what we were arguing. Uh, we weren't happy unless we were mad at each other, it seems. Uh, that's the culture in which my faith was born. And I remember that, and I remember the fellow that I held responsible for it. Uh, back in the day, we called him the ringtail leader of all of us. We uh, thought that he was the source of all the problems in our church. Um, to me, uh, as a junior hire, I thought that he was dousing the flame of the Holy Spirit in my life and in our youth group's life. Uh, he was the embodiment of evil. I'm kind of embarrassed to share that with you, but understand, this is my 14-year-old self. Um, I hope I've grown some since then, but back then I thought this one fellow was the embodiment of evil. And he did do some things that I still think were, were pretty bad. When our new pastor arrived, the, the pastor that I dearly loved, the pastor under whom I was called into ministry, uh, who I held great respect for, when that pastor came, uh, this uh, ringtail leader uh, was the chair of the SBRC committee, our personnel committee. And he had a meeting with a new pastor, and this SBRC chair said to the new pastor, Preacher, this is my church. The pastors that do what I say get to stay. The pastors that don't have to leave. So my pastor re replied to him, Well, that's not the way I work. God called me here, and we'll just have to see about that. Then the SBRC chair said back to him, Well, then I'm going to make your life miserable. And when I finish with you, I'm going to start on your wife and your kids. It's a promise he lived up to. He did make life tough on the pastor. The pastor's son, who was in college by that time, uh, cut the grass for the church. Did an excellent job, in my biased opinion. But he was the guy that did our lawn maintenance at the church. But this, this leader in the church uh, was constantly complaining, constantly trying to get the pastor's son fired from cutting the grass because he's trying to get rid of the pastor. He rounded up a whole opposition against him. They had secret meetings with the district superintendent. Um, There's just a lot of unhealthy stuff going on, and I was very angry about it. Um, I wouldn't have admitted it then because I knew I was right. But looking back on it, I actually hated the man. Again, I hate to admit that. I know better. I, w I knew better then. But I was so angry that it, that it turned into hatred. So much so that I remember one Sunday, he, he rarely came to church. Uh, he was the chair of the SBRC, but he rarely came to church. Uh, one Sunday he did come. Uh, at the end of the service, during the invitation, he came down to the altar to pray. It should have been a good thing. I should have been hopeful that something good was about to come out of this. But I sat there so blinded by my own grudge that I was mad at him. Like he didn't deserve to be there. I was mad at him for being at the altar because how bad he'd been. He was probably just trying to do it for show. You, you see what a grudge, what unforgiveness, what hatred can do to you. And the thing is, I thought I was justified. 
As bad as his behavior, I thought that my disdain for him was righteous anger. I thought I had every right to feel that way. I thought he deserved for me to feel that way about him. It was decades later before this parable from today finally took root in my life. It was decades later before I read that parable and I realized how much like the first servant I really was. Do you remember that first servant? Uh, he owed the uh, he owed his lord, his master. He owed him ten thousand talents. Now, in today's terms, that would be roughly or in excess, actually, of seventy million days' wages. Seventy million days' wages. He'd never be able to pay it. There wasn't that much money in all of history. And yet, Jesus says this servant owed the master 10,000 talents. And still the master forgave him. He pled for mercy, and the master forgave him. Uh, finally, I began to see that I was a whole lot like that first servant. Uh, God had forgiven me of that much, and so much more. God, and God's goodness, not because, not because I earned it, but because of God's incredible love for me. God forgave so just like that first servant, I was forgiven of an enormous debt. But just like that first servant, I was also trying to hold a puny little debt, a hundred days wages. I was trying to hold a puny little debt against my fellow church member. In my 14-year-old arrogance, I held a grudge against a fellow church member because I was convinced he was wrong and he deserved it. I was blind to the plank in my own eye while I was pointing out the speck in my fellow church member's eye. Worse yet, I thought my anger was righteous. I was hating him in the name of Jesus. Lord help me. I was, I was drinking my own poison and waiting for him to die. That's what unforgiveness does to us. But finally, decades later, I, with, with a lot of help from God and some good other friends and Christian leaders, finally began to come to my senses and I, I realized that I've got to obey Jesus. I've got to listen to what Jesus says in this parable, even if I don't like it, even if it's uncomfortable. I had to wrestle with the issue of forgiveness. Now, this fellow really had hurt me. It hurt some other people. And I still believe that some of what he did was wrong. But when Christians are wrong, we forget. It's what Christ calls us to do. When we are wrong, we forget. It sets the other person free. It also sets us free. It's the path to our healing. When Christians are wrong, we forget. Now let me be real careful here. Forgiving someone doesn't mean that you have to expose yourself to, uh, to danger by being around them again. If someone is a toxic person, it's okay to forgive them and keep your distance. Forgiving someone also doesn't mean that you don't seek justice. If someone commits a crime against you, you can forgive them for the crime, but still let the justice system do what they have to do to protect the rest of the community. But forgiveness is the way of Christ. We are forgiven in the way that we forgive. Now we've all been hurt, especially during these contentious times, these times of, of horrible division in our country, it seems like people are more angry at one another than I can remember. And so there's a lot of hurting going on. 
that means the need for a lot of forgiveness. And the deeper the hurt, the harder the work of forgiveness. But first, what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not just pretending nothing happened. Some people mistake those two. They think, well, I just pretend like nothing ever happened. Well, that's not really forgiveness. In forgiveness, we've got to own up to the fact that something wrong did go on. We've got to be honest. I was leading a retreat years ago, and uh, during a prayer time, a middle-aged woman came to me, and she was in great distress, and she wanted to share with me. She was, she was feeling some real emotional pain. As we talked, she began to reveal to me that as a child, she had been abused by her grandfather twice. And we began talking about what it would be like to, to begin to heal from that kind of emotional pain. Somebody she trusted so much that betrayed that trust so deeply. We began to talk about that kind of healing. Uh, and she said something that just really stuck with me. When we were talking about the pain that she endured, she said, well, it only happened twice. And it just floored me in that moment. It only happened twice, that denial. It really wasn't a big deal. I should just get over it. That's not forgiveness. In fact, that kind of denial blocks forgiveness. As long as we pretend nothing happened, then we really don't have the ability to forgive. Also, genuine forgiveness is usually more than what we learned on the kindergarten playground. You remember how that works out. Two children tie it up, they get angry with one another on the playground. The teacher separates them and tells them to apologize to each other. And they begrudgingly offer a few words of apology. Well, I'm sorry. And then the teacher turns to the other and says, what do, you, what do you say to them? Well, it's okay, or I forgive you. Well, they're not really sorry, and they probably hadn't really forgiven. They're still angry at one another. But we have made forgiveness out to be this little kindergarten playground exchange when so often it's far more. Again, the deeper the hurt, the tougher the road to forgiveness. One of my professors in seminary actually lines out seven steps of forgiveness. I've listed those on our Facebook devotion for this week. I encourage you to check it out. But more than that, I encourage you to, to have the courage to pursue it. You see, if you've been hurt, when we've been hurt, forgiveness leads to freedom. Unforgiveness leads to imprisonment. That's a result of the parable. You forgive, you're set free. Lack of forgiveness, you're held in bondage, in prison, in torture. If you've been hurt, I pray that you'll have the courage to begin the difficult journey of forgiveness. But you don't have to do it alone. In fact, I would encourage you to have a spiritual friend to walk through the journey with you. If I can help, I would love to do that. If I can, if I can walk through you, walk with you through that process of forgiveness, I would be honored to do so. If, you, if you'd like to reach out and talk about it, uh, my email address is on the screen right now. You can email me anytime, and we can have a confidential conversation that hopefully will lead you towards forgiveness and towards an emotional healing. Forgiveness is tough. It's one of the toughest things Christ asks Christians to do. But it's in forgiveness that we find true joy and true peace. I invite you to join me on that difficult journey towards peace. Amen. Amen.